Hey everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On this show, I feature conversations with endurance athletes committed to fostering social change. Okay, stick with me as I tell you something groundbreaking. Are you ready? Sports are not the center of the world, not when we consider all of the big topics and issues that exist in this world. But at the same time, sports are the center of the world. Endurance sports provide us with a great avenue to explore the topics that really matter, from climate change to mental health to equity and inclusion. So come along as my guests and I explore one question. How are endurance sports a powerful platform for social change? Big thank you to Ope Running for sponsoring the Social Sport Podcast. Ope Running is an ethical running apparel brand designed and produced in Minnesota. The mission of Ope is truly incredible. Their performance apparel is high quality with bold colors and breathable fabrics. And this apparel is made especially for runners who care about their impact on our planet and the people who reside here. Ope even offsets the carbon emissions for every single order they ship. One of my favorite items of theirs is the Tiny Lil Short. Yes, all of their products have fun names like Tiny Lil Short. I have these shorts in the ocean blue color and they're super bright and breathable. I'll definitely be rocking them on the run, especially now that the weather is warming up. Go to oprunning.com and use code SOCIALSPORT at checkout to get 15% off your order. Again, that's operunning.com and code SOCIALSPORT. Indra Hare joins me on the show today. Indra is a skier, outdoor industry professional, a freelance diversity and inclusion consultant, and a model based in Vancouver. Indra is also the founder of Inclusivity, which is a relatively new platform. Inclusivity, notice the emphasis on the ski, breaks down barriers to entry for traditionally marginalized folks in snow sports, and it also provides programming to make skiing and other snow sports more accessible. I really enjoyed this interview because I honestly haven't gotten the chance to feature many skiers on social sport, and I know that a lot of what Indra shared about imposter syndrome and psychological safety in skiing is relevant to running, biking, and the outdoor industry in general. Indra is so much fun and incredibly inspiring, so let's get to this conversation. Hey Indra, welcome to Social Sport. I'm really excited to dive into everything that you do today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to talk about it and get into the nitty gritty of it all. Uh, The nitty gritty, that's what we will get into. And I think you're one of like three skiers that I've had on the podcast. So I'm excited about that too, uh, because it's just always fun to learn about a sport that I'm not so much in the, in the thick of, and I don't know as much about. And I think it provides just a different type of diversity for my listeners. So I'm excited about that too. Amazing. Let's get into it. So as we get started, could you just introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, where you are right now and what you're passionate about. Totally. Yeah. So my name is Indra Hare, and I'm located on the ancestral unceded and traditional territory of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish First Nations, which is also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm really passionate about diversity and inclusion in the outdoors, in particular to the ski community, which is why I founded an organization slash platform called Inclusivity. 
And could you explain how you got your start in skiing? Because what you do is so centered around skiing. So I'm curious if it's been a part of your life since you were, you know, walking, because I think that's the case for a lot of skiers. Yeah, I think that is the case for a lot of skiers. Uh, Not for me, though. I started skiing. I want to say that I was, I feel like the age I give always changes, but I really want to say that I was like nine when I started skiing. And I only skied for a couple of years. Like I really only skied for two or three seasons until basically until the first setup that my parents bought secondhand off of Craigslist didn't fit anymore. Um, My parents put my sister and I into skiing very much as like this notion of we're going to put you into this thing and give you the tools to learn it. And then if you want to revisit this as an adult, you can come back to it but it just wasn't financially a priority for us. And we didn't have the time because my sister and I both played a lot of team sports. And so our parents worked during the week and then we went on weekends to tournaments and whatnot. So um, for us, it wasn't a priority growing up to continue skiing, but then I started working in the outdoor industry in my early twenties and that being in that space made me really want to get back into it. And that gave me the confidence to also start leaning into it. But then as I started to get back into it, I was really realizing that what was keeping me out of these spaces was A, financial barriers, and B, nobody else in these spaces looked like me. And so even re-entering them, I didn't feel super confident or comfortable. And I had to overcome a lot to get there. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely put in like a shift over the last three years, getting back into skiing and really getting myself to the hill and, and doing it a lot and falling in love with it. But it was definitely not an easy journey for me. And that's kind of what sparked inclusivity because I realized that I probably wasn't the only person who had a similar experience like that. Totally. Yeah. And those financial barriers, as well as the experience of realizing there aren't many people that look like me in this sport are so real. And I'm excited to go deeper into that in a little bit and get at the barriers that exist in skiing. But first, I'd love to kind of trace the thread a bit of this passion you have for equity and inclusion. How did this play out in your childhood? Was this a big value that was taught to you? What did that look like? That's such a good question. And I've never really thought about that. Um, I don't know if it was something that was taught to me. I think what was taught to me was just like, I don't know, my grandma always said like, don't be fake. And that for some reason, that is what I come back to, like, just be a kind, genuine, authentic person. And for me, that shows up in like wanting to bring people into spaces. I think I've always had like, this kind of beef with exclusivity. Um, And I think that that has just followed me throughout my life. And I've always been kind of a community builder, especially when I was in university. And so I think the community building aspect of it just follows me into whatever it is that I want to get after and whatever it is that I want to work on. And so in university, my outlet for that was being a part of different organizations where I did that on the regular. But then when I graduated, I didn't have that outlet as much anymore. Um, And so kind of looking at my larger spaces and figuring out how I could build community into that more. Um, But I think for me, it definitely just comes down to like loving the feeling of belonging and really wanting everybody to feel that at some point in their life. It seems so simple when you say it that way, you know, just like (laughs) what we, we think of these big terms like diversity, equity, and inclusion that we've, you know, created a category and jobs and everything. And when it comes down to it, it's just wanting everyone to belong. So it's interesting to hear you say that and name that. 
Totally. Yeah. It's, it's really just like wanting to give up, wanting to feel like everybody can exist authentically in a space and exist like themselves and not have to be like a chameleon to their environments. Totally. So one dynamic that I'm really interested in is you grew up, you're born and raised in Vancouver, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, So Vancouver is, in my experience, a relatively diverse city. At the same time, skiing is a pretty popular sport in Vancouver. And skiing is a stereotypically majority white sport. So I'm curious how these two factors, the fact that there's this large BIPOC population in this place, but snow sports are relatively white. How did that interact in Vancouver or how does that interact? Totally. And like to even add a layer onto it, I grew up in like North Delta slash Surrey. And so like very diverse, like I'm South Asian myself and grew up around a lot of South Asian folks. Um, And I think what it comes down to is like, when you look at the ski community, what it was built upon was like whiteness and it was built upon money. And when you have that generational wealth and that generational like knowledge around skiing, that's kind of what has people coming back into the space and back into the sport. And those are the folks that you're being seen represented everywhere. Like those are the folks that you're being, that are being represented in catalogs, in magazines, in the Olympics. It's very few and far between when you think of like BIPOC folks for skiing or snowboarding on the Olympic podium. Like I cried when Chloe Kim won in snowboarding because it was somebody who kind of look like me who won. Um, And so when you can have an extremely diverse city, but if there's a community within that city that isn't diverse, then it's going to be really hard to break into it. And I think it does come down to a lot of the different barriers around representation, especially that keep that area super homogenous and really white. And like, it's changing now for sure. Um, But I know, I know for so much of my life and even now, still, when I go to the Hill, like, I don't see a ton of South Asian people. And when I do, I am, like, sure to smile at them because it's just, like, it, you feel this connectedness to them. And when, especially when they have, like, their kids with them, like, I want their kids to see me and think and for their kids to realize that they belong, you know? 100%. And I can imagine that must have been pretty central in your mind as you were getting back into skiing. Because knowing these barriers and just knowing that there aren't many people that look like you on the hill, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was like, it was super evident in the way that people would speak to me. And and this happens to me in most sports that I play. Um, Like I was on ice skates, for example, almost as soon as I could walk. And I've been playing softball slash t-ball since I was about four, three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever I enter sports spaces in a, as an adult and people see me recreate for the first time, a lot of people are really surprised by how good I am. And it unconsciously comes down to the fact that they haven't seen an, a lot of Indian women dominate in these spaces and be that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's kind of like, I've never would have never thought that I wasn't good at these things until people questioned my ability or people were surprised by my ability because they kind of just painted me with this brush and they kind of just assumed that because I was a woman, because I was a woman of color, unconsciously they assumed my ability level and then were surprised when I surpassed that low bar that they set for me. And so, like I said, I don't think I've ever thought that I wasn't good at these things or that I couldn't be good until 
people were surprised by my presence mm-hmm. and the way that I took up space. It's interesting because I think often people can say, is representation really that important? Like, what does representation do in process? Like, of course, you and I know that representation is important, but it's hard sometimes for folks to see the what comes after the representation. And totally. it's interesting to hear that it's not just a matter of representation. It's what a lack of representation causes. And hearing from you, it sounds like all these stereotypes and expectations that can really cut a person down. Yeah. And it like keeps you out of the space too. Like it, it just, it makes that space a lot less fun to be in. It makes those people less fun to be around. And then you're carrying this extra weight of not only having to show up as yourself on the hill, but also having to show up as your identities. So I have to show up as a woman and I have to show up as a woman of color, as a South Asian person. And so I always feel like I'm representing so much more than myself, but also my communities. And I have to excel or, you know, at least get by to prove that my communities can excel or get by. How do you balance that with your own mental health? I mean, that's a big burden to carry knowing that, and, and you've taken it upon yourself too of inclusivity, which we'll get into in a bit, but I can imagine now there's quite a bit of pressure to represent your identities. Yeah, totally. I think, interestingly enough, I feel it a bit less now because I think people who know me know what I'm about um, and people who ski with me or interact with me know what I'm about. There is still that added pressure of folks who don't know me or people who I am with for the first, like skiing with for the first time, for example, I I still do sometimes feel that pressure or that nervousness, but I think I've overcome it because I've gotten a lot more confident in myself and not only my ability, but just like the fact that I deserve to be there just as much as anybody else. But that took me a really long time. Um, It took me, you know, entering different outdoor spaces, all sorts of outdoor spaces with the right people, with finding the right people, finding the right communities. And I'm really grateful that I have so many friends to recreate in these spaces with. Mm. Um, And I'm really grateful for my fellow like black indigenous and women of color who I get to recreate with because I get to, I think those are my favorite spaces because I do get to show up authentically the most, even just with other women. I feel the best when I get to ski with other women because I feel like that pressure of the dominant culture, which tends to be white men, is just lifted. Um, And something that I think about a lot um, is a lot of the times in life, you don't know what's a barrier to you until it's been lifted. And then all of a sudden, it's like you're looking at life through this whole other lens and you're like, oh my goodness, like the barrier's lifted and there's this entire new landscape in front of you. And you were like, that was there the entire time. And it's all because that barrier was lifted. And for me, a lot of that time, that barrier is just like the presence of of white men in those spaces. Um, And and, and not all white men, for sure, but like the dominant culture um, just kind of puts that pressure. Yeah. So for me, balancing my mental health is like getting out into these spaces where I feel psychologically safe. um, And it takes finding those people that you feel psychologically safe with, for sure. Well, you use that term barrier, and that's a great segue because I would love to name the barriers of entry in skiing. And we talked about representation. Another one that we kind of touched on was the financial barriers. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, skiing is a bonkers expensive sport. 
it not only is it expensive to get all the gear, but it's also expensive to get your lift ticket every single year. Um, a ski set like skis are like eight hundred plus dollars, and bindings are like a couple hundred dollars, and then boots are like four to five hundred dollars. Like I'm just tossing out numbers, but like it's really just tossing that into to perspective, and that's just like your setup. And then you think about your pants, your jacket, your goggles, your poles, like all of these tiny things that end up adding up and costing a lot of money. And then on top of that, you have to add in your ski pass. Like a, like a ski pass at Whistler is like $1,200. Last time I checked, student passes are more accessible. They're just less than 700. But it, that's still so much money to be getting up to these mountains. And so not only do you have to invest in the entire setup, but then every year you have to reinvest in the lift tickets. And I'm not saying that that's something that we can change overnight, but for folks who haven't been skiing since they were really little and like have accumulated these things over time, or for folks who don't work at like in the outdoor industry or don't have connections to the industry and you're buying everything at full value, it's really expensive. And, um, it's also hard when you're growing up to be in a, that kind of sport where like you're constantly outgrowing those things and those mm -hmm. things cost so much money. So financial barriers are just like one of many. And, you know, I was lucky to work in the industry where the barriers are a bit less, but as somebody, even as somebody who works in the industry, I'm like, it upsets me that it's so hard for other folks to get into these spaces. Yeah. 100%. It's, I mean, I grew up in rural Connecticut and I skied growing up. And one thing that my family would do was rent gear for the season because then, you know, your mm -hmm. kids grow out of it and you can rent a new set the next year. But I am not sure how common that is. And even renting is expensive if you're doing that yeah. year after year. I'm curious in your experience in the community, whether you know of any efforts to whether it's organizations or shops that are trying to decrease the financial barriers at all? Yeah, I can't think of any big ones off the top of my head. But like there are good initiatives, like there's one called good gear auction, where they get a bunch of gear donated to them, and then they auction it off and all the proceeds go to two local organizations around Vancouver called color the trails and indigenous women outdoors. And so that was massively successful. It was a great way to get used gear out into the hands of other people. And then also the money was going to a great cause. I'm sure there are a lot. I don't, I can't name them off the top of my head. I, but I am feeling really hopeful because even I had put out a call on my Instagram page about um, an event we have coming up where we're going to get, you know, we're going to have like a women's ride day on one of the local hills. And we have six spots and the lift tickets are covered and the rentals are covered. And so many people have reached out saying like, do you take donations for gear? Um, so stay tuned, everybody. I'm hoping that I can start to facilitate some sort of like circular gear donation thing where we can have gear donated to inclusivity and then um, donated to the hands of other folks for maybe a small fee that goes back into the community. So we're trying out here. A lot of people are trying. You just kind of have to find those local communities who are doing the legwork. Okay. I love or that so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, going to yeah. have to keep, keep checking and, and seeing what happens with that effort and whether you can get that gear donation up and running. Yeah. And everyone will have to follow along on your Instagram. I'll <laughs> leave the link for that, Stay of tuned. course, in the show notes. <laughs> but another barrier to entry, and this could totally be coming from my own bias and my experience in 
the bike world, which is also pretty white male dom- dominated, where there is often quite a power dynamic in shops. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what that looks like in ski shops because it is white male dominated. Is there any sort of dynamic of being condescending in general? What is that like? Oh, yeah. I do not like ski shops. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's a bunch of people assuming your abilities. And without a doubt, whenever I go to get my skis mounted, they'll like set my DIN setting, which is the setting that like keeps you secure in your boots. Um, They'll set it really low so that if I take a fall, like I just really easily eject, but that's not what I'm going for. (laughs) Like I want to stay in my skis and I want to be able to hit jumps and not eject from my skis. So I need a higher DIN. Um, But no matter what I write on my sheet, they'll set my DIN too low. And it's literally just them seeing me giving me, giving me my skis. Also me having like an ethnic name, Indra Hare, and them assuming what my DIN level should be. And so that's been really frustrating. And I also just like, there's not a lot of women in those spaces either. So it's not only like BIPOC feeling excluded. It's just like, there's not a lot of other women. And something that I would really appreciate from the industry is just having more women in these roles because I want to go talk to somebody who understands my ski experience, who skis like me and who knows exactly what I'm needing, not somebody who is just assuming my ability and then is like condescending towards me. So I definitely hear you. And I feel like it's probably a super similar experience in the bike community. Cause even I dropped off my bike to get like looked at today and I told the guys what I needed and they just like were very condescending back to me. And it was all dudes in the shop. And I just left being like, all I know is that I just needed to get my brake pads looked at. Why did they question me so hard on that? You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And doesn't it make you kind of question yourself a little bit? I think that folks don't always understand how much being condescending and that power dynamic can affect a person. Totally. Like, it kind of goes back to what I was saying, right? It's like, I never thought that I didn't belong in these spaces until somebody questioned my presence there. And that's totally how I feel in shops as well. Like, I've never questioned myself as a skier until I'm in a shop and then somebody is like condescending towards me, questioning what I'm telling them about my ability level. And then I start to look within and be like, oh my goodness, am I like talking up my game too much? Am am I a good skier? Am I a good skier? And so it really, like, I don't know how to overcome that yet because it definitely feeds into imposter syndrome. And it's a really hard thing to beat. And imposter syndrome is this whole other thing on its own (laughs) that is so real. (laughs) It's real, but it's – I don't think people often talk about imposter syndrome as related to identity, as related to race and gender, and it is super related because, yeah, I think those power dynamics and the way your your people speak to you because of your identities can very much filter into uh, imposter syndrome. So I think that's an important thing to bring up. Totally. So was there any experience in particular that led you to inclusivity or was it kind of more the combination of everything? Um, there were like a handful of things. I think, I think it was an accumulation of so many things. Um, like one of them being before. So I got back into skiing, I think when I was like 22, 21 or 22. Um, and somebody had asked me if I wanted to go skiing with them and their friends. And I was like, ah, I'm like just getting back into it. And like, 
I don't want to ruin, like, I don't want to slow down your day. You guys are so good. And I would have to get rentals and like really talking myself down. And then this person, instead of like talking me up and being like, no, I, I want you to come. It would be great if you came, like, doesn't matter. We'll go at your pace. They were like, oh, you're a rentals person. And I was like, oh, oh, so now like, I can't even, I shouldn't even be going to the Hill because I'm a rentals person. And like, that's frowned upon. So like, do I have to go now and invest in a setup to be, to, to be here authentically? Um, and there were just a, a few experiences that that kind of like snowballed from where there would just be comments in passing, like, oh, you're a better skier than I thought you were. Or are you really going to carry your skis like that? Where it's just like, again, like somebody either being surprised or questioning or judging and all of those things just accumulated. And that, that's what made me really passionate towards diversity and inclusion in outdoor spaces and made me really realize the privilege that it takes to do these things. I think those comments, that first comment of like, oh, you're a rentals person sparked so much within me where I was like, that is just sheer privilege speaking. And it really like snowballed mm-hmm. from that over a few years. Um, and then eventually that snowball grew big enough that it became inclusivity where I was like, I, be- I was basically like, I'm tired of hearing my own voice on these topics because every time I talk about it, so many people tell me that it resonates and I want to hear more from those people. And so I kind of started it as a space to just get more voices talking about it and to normalize the conversation and to elevate stories that weren't my own. Yeah. I mean, hearing that, it just feels like all accumulation is the perfect word because it just feels like like a snowball, like you said, all of these experiences and the weight of that, I think when a little comment is made, sometimes maybe that doesn't put you over the edge, but it's the accumulation of all those little words and stereotypes. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, yeah it, it was true. Like inclusivity is the byproduct of a lot of microaggressions, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> totally. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the process of starting it because it seems like it's grown rapidly. So I'd love to yeah. hear about that. Um, yeah, I think it shocks me all the time how quickly it grew. And I don't think I was fully prepared for that. Um, I was literally driving in the car one day thinking about how we could make skiing more inclusive when I realized that like the word ski could fit into the word inclusive really nicely. Um, and then I like went home and I looked up this Instagram handle inclusivity and it was available. And I was like, sweet, I'm going to save that. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to save it. And, and when was it this? Sorry. Be, <laughs> this was like, the end of December like this was like just before of 2020 Christmas. so listeners know yeah right? yeah <laughs> yes of 2020 so like less than four months ago um and so yeah this was in December and luckily it was over Christmas break so I was like at my parents house for a couple days and didn't really have much going on and I started to think about what I wanted this thing to be like I had this Instagram handle what do I want it to become and initially I was gonna make it like a humans of New York style kind of page where it would be like a picture of somebody and then an excerpt from an interview, like a larger interview. Um, And then I did my first interview with my sister because she's half deaf. So she doesn't have any hearing in her left ear. And that really impacted her skiing experience. And so I thought that was going to be a really valuable experience to talk about, which it was. And while I was editing her video, I was like, there is no way 
that I can just take one thing that you said, because you just said so much that is so valuable. And so then it became this thing where I was like, I'm going to post the videos and like have her speak her story so people can hear her and can hear her voice behind it and the passion and the experience behind it all. And after her post, like, I feel like after her first two interviews, like the account had already climbed to like 400 followers. Um, and I was expecting to be at this point, like four months deep with maybe 200 followers. Like I wasn't really expecting a lot. Like, again, this was something that for me was, I was like, I just want these stories to be heard. Um, and I want them to live somewhere so that people at any point can come to them. And so it started to grow really fast just through the interviews. Um, and then in the meantime, back in November, I had had this idea to run an all BIWOC uh, avalanche safety training one course because I had personally wanted to apply for a mountain mentorship program, but I wasn't accepted because I didn't have my avalanche safety training. And I was like, okay, I have access to like a lot of the different things. But to be honest, this like $350 course is still such a financial barrier to me. And if it's a barrier to me, this must be a barrier to entry for so many other people of color. Um, and I want to create a program that can bridge the gap of representation in the backcountry. And so I worked with one of my really good friends named Murray, and we got a bunch of brands on board to sponsor seven five. POC women, so BIWOC, in the acquisition of their AST1 at no cost to them. Mm. Um, and so this was kind of, this happened really quickly. Like, again, this was like, I had an idea at like 7.30 in the morning before coffee. And then by like three that day, before I was coffee. Sick before coffee, I, th I feel like I had a dream about it or something. Like, <laughs> I don't know what it was. It came to me in my sleep. And then at like 3.30 that day, I was preparing a pitch deck to send to Burton so that they could sponsor the project. And like by the next morning, Burton was like, we're on board and like, let us know how you need our support. Um, so that was happening before Inclusivity launched. But then once Inclusivity launched, and then in a couple weeks from then, we had the AST1 course that kind of became this thing that would live under inclusivity and opened up the realm for inclusivity to also run programming and events. So basically what it's turned into is just this like all inclusive space where we're going to elevate marginalized voices and we're going to share stories and we're going to validate traditionally marginalized folks in their experience and then educate more privileged folks about the experiences of others. Um, and then also we're going to provide programming for traditionally marginalized groups that can help reduce some of those initial barriers to entry, such as financial barriers and also the barriers of like psychological safety, because the power that comes, I noticed when we put those BIWOC in a space together, that power was unmatched. Like the psychological safety that you feel in that space when there's no pressure to hold any of your other identities and show up in those identities, but you just have to show up as yourself. And the only expectation of you is to arrive as yourself was immensely powerful and made me realize that like, that's something that the, the organization needs to prioritize moving forward for sure. The idea of different types of safety is something that keeps coming up in these conversations recently. And it's so mm -hmm. intriguing to me because I think when you're specifically talking about an adventure sport, such as skiing, the first meaning of safety that comes to mind is physical safety. And I think it's really cool to kind of reclaim that word and make people think more deeply about what it really means to be safe in 
an adventure sport setting. Totally. And like, how can you like thinking of like an avalanche safety one training course, like they're basically teaching you how to save the lives of your friends that you are backcountry skiing with. They're teaching you how to use a beacon, how to use your probe and shovel. And how can you be expected to react in a way that is like physically safe if in your brain, you're not psychologically safe. And like we were in line for with our avalanche safety group going in line for the gondola to go up to the mountain. And beside us was another avalanche safety training group. And in that group was, was like six white men and two white women. And I looked at that group and I was like, I hope they have so much fun. But thank goodness that I am not there because I know that I would be feeling so much pressure to arrive in like my best form. Whereas I knew with the girls that I was with, I could fall if I wanted to fall or I could go slow if I wanted to go slow. And I don't think that there, I think that there are a few women in that group, myself included, that might not have gotten their avalanche safety one training if it weren't for that space that we had created. Yeah, totally. And going back to the launch of inclusivity and also providing access to this avalanche course for these women, I just have to give you so much kudos for your resourcefulness that you had these ideas and really jumped on them so fast and were able to make them a reality. And I'm curious now, looking back, now that inclusivity launched, was it you said four and a half months ago? Are there any lessons or takeaways, anything that specifically jumps out to you over those past four and a half months? Yeah, it's more like three and a half months, which just like blows my mind. Yeah. What is time right um, now, though? We don't know time anymore. It's a social construct. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I I still think I'm in over my head with it. um, And I think it's going to take me really putting in some time in the summer to figure out what like 2021 and 2022 season looks like. I wasn't anticipating this kind of growth, but what I'm really excited about and what I'm really grateful for is that the, like the outdoor DEI community in Vancouver is really connected. And I have a lot of peers who are doing really similar work in their own individual communities and in their own individual ways. And so What I'm really grateful for is that whenever I feel like I hit a bit of a wall, I know that I can reach out to somebody who is the founder of a different organization and be like, hey, how did you get through this? And like, how did you how did you become a nonprofit? Like, how do you take donations? The the part where I sometimes get stuck is that it is just me and it still feels too young to like start distributing and, and giving it ownership of it away because I still haven't fully built it out. Um, but it is growing whether I like it or not. And so there are these <laughs> steps that I need to take. Um, if you had asked me it at the end of December, if I had thought that I would be trying to register this thing as a nonprofit, or if I would be planning events, uh, I would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, you know, like, I just I could have never imagined. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, and I'm grateful for the community of people that are just so hungry for this content. I think that that's something that really took me by surprise was because of how fast it grew. It was really evident to me that like there is a desire for this content. There is a desire for this learning. There's a desire for this representation and this shift in the community. Um, and that is something that really excites me and makes me really hopeful. Mm. 
It makes me hopeful too. And I can't wait to see because it has been such a short period of time. I can't wait to catch up with you in a year or, you know, even, yeah. even you know, maybe sooner and to see all that it becomes because it's launched so fast. And just looking at the page, yeah. I mean, it's very beautiful. You do a great job. And I'm a little bit curious about your experience in content creation <laughs> and because it, it is, it looks very professional. Wow. Thank you so much. I have no experience in content creation. So that means so much. Um, I think that kind of feeds into why sometimes I'm like, wow, I'm really in over my head because I just started to wear all these different silly little hats. Content creation. It all goes back them, to the imposter syndrome. <laughs> totally. It totally does. Yeah. It's like, it's been super cool though, because it has given me the opportunity to like dive into these things that I would have never considered being a part of my identity. Like I would have never considered myself to be a creative or I would have never considered myself to be a content creator. It just was not something that I thought I would do. I was like, I'm an athlete and that's what I do. And it's great. Um, so I think to have found this creative outlet has been such a gift and a blessing because for so much of my life, I was convinced that I just like was not a creative person, but it's been cool to be able to like dip my toes into trying something totally new and doing it for myself and with myself. Like I think that it's so hard to, for example, get into like content in a career mode when that's something that you've never done before or never had experience doing, but to have the autonomy to go and do it. And then for it to start to feel like it's being like, you know, it, it's kind of successful, um, has been, a, has been a really cool way to watch myself grow. I love that totally. And on top of this inclusivity thing that has snowballed and grown and is continuing to grow, you also have a full-time job in the outdoor industry. <laughs> uh, you do freelance diversity and consulting work. You are a model. How does that all come together? Uh, not very gracefully. Um, I definitely ride the fine line between balance and burnout really dangerously. And it can be really difficult, to be honest. Like I will sometimes take the weekend off and, and just ski both days and not do any work, not really look at inclusivity work, not look at my emails. And then I'll wake up on Monday and like feel bad about it. Or I'll catch myself doing a couple laps. Like on Sunday, I was doing a few laps in the morning by myself before meeting up with friends. And I just felt like my mind the entire time being like, and this is what you do have to do next week. And this is what you have to do. And when you get home, you have to do this. And so I do feel like my brain runs a mile a minute. Um, I think what keeps me grounded is that I do like to have some things in a routine, like in the winter, I know that I don't like to plan a lot on the weekends because I, I will be skiing. And so I like to leave both days pretty open so that I can give myself the time to go skiing. And in the summer months, like I play sports on different teams. And so I know that like on Monday I have volleyball and on Wednesdays I have softball and I'm not doing anything else. And so I work in the day and then I go into the sports and like having those kinds of like things scheduled in for myself, those commitments scheduled in, um, really helps me draw that line of like overworking myself. Um, but it is, a, it is definitely a really hard, tricky space to be in sometimes. And I wish I could say that I have mastered it a bit better, but I have been starting to draw the line of like no quote unquote work related things on the weekend. So I, I don't really answer emails on the weekend. I don't really answer a lot of DMs on the weekend um, because I am really intentional about taking that time to kind of reset and like re-become myself before going into the next week. <laughs> 
I think that's a really hard thing to do. So I'm very impressed by you. But also, I just really appreciate you saying that you haven't figured it all out. Because I think I, I can't think of anyone who has figured it all out. Any busy person who has a creative passion as well as a full time job and as many things you do, who doesn't teeter the line of burnout very often. Totally. So I appreciate the honesty. Yeah. If- if there's a listener who hasn't figured out, like, please DM me. I need help. <laughs> oh, yeah. You and me both. I would love to yeah. hear the secret. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So I know that in your modeling work, I'd love to get into that briefly because I know that there's a connection you see between that and diversity and inclusion. And I think that's a pretty unique approach to modeling, at least in my experience. So how does that all play out? Yeah, I am very much of the mindset of people can't see themselves in spaces, can't, or I'm a, that people can't exist authentically in spaces unless they see themselves represented there. And growing up, I never saw myself represented in any popular media. Like, if you think about role models I had to look up to, I had Princess Jasmine and I had the girl from Slumdog Millionaire when that movie came out. And Other than that, like a lot of the Indian characters are like super stereotypical and like didn't get the best rap. Um, And so when I got older and I started to like dabble into modeling just because one of my best friends is a photographer and she would need like freelance models for random pieces and random projects. And I kind of got into it that way. And then I started to like see myself on different Instagram pages or on different websites. And I was like, this is pretty neat. Like, If I was a young girl and I saw a South Asian model with hair on her arms, that would have made my life so much easier. Mm -hmm. Like, I just know how much less I would have worried, how much less insecure I would have been, how I might have thought before the age of 20 that, like, I could be beautiful or I was perceived as beautiful or pretty. Um, I never, you know, would have thought that I was any sort of pretty until my 20s because media was really telling me otherwise. Um, And so when I started to get into modeling, it started to focus a lot around like outdoor modeling and and that kind of stuff. Um, And I was of the camp of like, if some girl can see herself in me on like a mech Instagram post, that means so much. Like if that picture of me hiking is what's going to get that girl to go outside or that boy to go outside, that person to go outside, then I'm for it. Um, Because to me, representation is really important. Um, And something that I like to tie it to as a model too, is if people also decide to draw like a story about me. So like, I love to model and have it to be like intentional and, and have a story about me and what I'm passionate about and like why diversity and inclusion is important. So yeah, it shows up in many different ways. But I think the biggest thing for me is like, I never want um, other young Indian kids to not think that they're beautiful, not think that they don't belong somewhere. I don't want them to think that like the hair on their arms is a flaw. I want them to move through life a lot easier than I did. And I think a lot of that comes down to representation and seeing yourself represented in spaces um, just the same way that white people are represented in spaces. Yeah, I keep hearing in your words this passion for showing younger people, showing kids. I hear that when you're talking about seeing kids on the slopes. And I think that there's something so beautiful in that, in the power of representation for the younger generation. 
Totally. Yeah. I think like at the core of it, I was thinking about this the other day where I was like, why do I do this? And like, in some way, it's just because I want to like create a better life for like my future family too. Like I would never want my kids to go through what I went through. And so I say that so dramatically, but like when I think about having my own family in the future, I really want my kids to be able to move through life in a way where they feel like they belong from the get-go. I don't want them to ever have to question their sense of belonging just because of the color of their skin. And what that takes is me being a part of creating a world that supports that. And so I want to support that for like my future kids, my sister's future kids, like anybody's kids, any, any BIPOC person's future children and the future generation. I just want it to be a lot more inclusive. That is a very beautiful thought and an image. And I think for anyone who's in diversity, equity, inclusion work, to be able to think about that future image rather than, because it can be overwhelming the day to day of everything. And I love that you really painted that vision of why we do this work, why anyone does this work, right? Thank you. Yeah, totally. So before we wrap up, I love to do some fast and fun rapid fire questions to make things a little bit lighter. (laughs) Fun. (laughs) I'm ready. I'll roll up my sleeves. Perfect. Okay. Getting into the nitty gritty, really. Coffee or hot chocolate? Coffee. Sweet. So you could only ski one slope for the rest of your life. Which would you choose? Like one run or like one mountain? Um. Obviously, I don't have the ski <laughs> terminology, <laughs> but like, okay, okay bo- both, both, both. <laughs> okay, if I had to ski one mountain for the rest of my life, it would be Whistler and it would be Peak mm. Chair for sure. Cool. Okay. I went to Whistler a couple of times when I was very little, but I unfortunately don't ski nice. anymore. But maybe after this conversation, it will motivate me. Come on. I'll go with you. <laughs> I totally, I would love to. I'd love to. But yeah, I, I remember Whistler being absolutely beautiful. Do you have a favorite non-skiing outdoor activity? Running. I love running. You and me both. Oh, Uh, I love it so much. It's the best. The majority of my listeners are runners. So I think if they aren't already in love with your story, they'll love you even more for that answer. Fun. I love that. Best book you've read or movie you've watched over the past year? Oh, goodness. Um best book I read was How to Pronounce Knife. It's a book of short stories uh, written by an Asian author. And it's phenomenal. It's like a window into so many different um, immigrant experiences. It's really beautiful. That sounds amazing. I'll have to put that on my list. I haven't read that one. Yeah. So the last question that I ask everyone is why is sport a powerful platform for social change? Because I think to some degree, sport is something that so many people in this world connect over in different ways, whether you're an athlete, whether you are just a, a, a viewer, a fan, a watcher. Um, but we connect through sports so often. Think about how the Olympics brings the world together in so many beautiful ways. And so sport is definitely this huge catalyst for change. And it's a way through which so many people view the world. Um, and if we can just change that lens a little bit and start to have that diversity, equity, and inclusion lens, for example, being built into the space that so many people interact with, it's going to have such a large impact that's not going to be totally well received all the time. Like think about 
kneeling during the national anthem, but in the same breath, like thinking also about the impact that that had on the way that the world reacted positively. So it's just a way that so many of us connect and that can bring a lot of people together and kind of start to get us into the same way of thinking. Mm Absolutely. I love that answer. And I love everything that you're doing. I'm so excited to watch Inclusivity grow. You'll have to keep everyone updated. Everyone will have to follow along. It's been so much fun to talk with you, Indra. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I super appreciate it. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. If you enjoyed this conversation, go subscribe, rate, and review Social Sport on Apple Podcasts. That would be so helpful to me. You can find Social Sport on Instagram at Social Sport Pod, and you can subscribe to the monthly Social Sport newsletter at socialsport.substack.com. Finally, stay tuned for the end of the week because I have an exciting announcement about something that is upcoming for Social Sport. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Stay sporty and keep resisting.